Hi, this is Patty Lapone. This is Allison Janney. This is Matt Balmer. This is Donna Murphy. This is Nia Vardalis. This is Jesse Tyler Ferguson. This is Beanie Feldstein. I'm Octavia Spencer. This is Ben Platt, and you're listening to Little Known Facts with my favorite person on the planet, Alana Levine. A-OK. Welcome to Little Known Facts, a podcast where you will hear unfiltered, raw, honest, and uniquely funny interviews with artists you love as they talk about the art they love to make. I'm your host, Ilana Levine. Hey, I heard you needed inspiration. He's Ilana and friends with some revelations. Little known back to the day, every little thing's gonna be A-OK. Little known fact about my guest today, together with his partner, Mark Shaman, they have created more Broadway content than any two people should be expected to create in a lifetime, but they have done it. And every time there's some grand award handed to them for it. But it is really an incredible honor to sit down and hear the story of how Scott Whitman became one of the most prolific, lauded, brilliant songwriters for Broadway and beyond. Welcome Scott Whitman to the podcast. Hey everyone, my guest today is the Tony Grammy and Olivier award-winning lyricist, director, writer, and conceiver, Scott Whitman. Scott co-wrote the lyrics for the hit musical Hairspray with creative partner, Mark Shaman. Scott was nominated for a Golden Globe, Grammy, and two Emmy Awards for the original songs on NBC's musical drama Smash. Some of Scott and Mark's other Broadway credits include Martin Short Fame Becomes Me. Scott also directed that show. They also wrote Catch Me If You Can and Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. His notorious and legendary downtown shows are in the permanent collection of the Museum of Modern Art in New York. Mark and Scott also wrote the score to Disney's Mary Poppins Returns, and their song The Place Where Lost Things Go was nominated for an Oscar. Most recently, Mark and Scott, along with Amber Ruffin and Matthew Lopez, have written a new musical version of Some Like It Hot that is currently on Broadway today as we speak. And at this point, when I've read all of the things that you have been lauded with in awards, you have choices. So why did you make the choice to say yes to Some Like It Hot? Okay, we were in London um, shooting Mary Poppins and um, Returns. And um, we got a call from um, Craig Zayden and Neil Merrin, who were the producers. And so uh, we had done Smash with them and Hairspray Live on TV. And, and um they had for a long time had had the the, the rights were difficult to attain so because there already had been a musical in the 70s that david merrick had produced of, of it was called sugar and it was basically the movie on stage so um elaine joyce was in it and she basically imitated marilyn and and the two men were tony roberts and and bobby morris so who were very funny i saw it and because i was in college then when it was in boston i Thing. Anyway, they um, 
um, there was no no need to do it again to do the movie on stage. So uh, the first thing they said to us was, we 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 don't want to try to compete with a Marilyn. We what if, if she's black? And I thought, well, that's a much more interesting story already because um, it's a different type of music. It was more in the in the Lena Horn, uh, um, Billy Holiday area, which is a sweet spot for Mark and I to write in. And then um, they said, and we would like to do it with uh, if you're if you're uh, if you're into it with Matthew Lopez. So Matthew had just written the, this epic drama of the inheritance, and uh, I had been a fan of his from a play he had done off Broadway called The Legend of George and McBride. And he has a very singular voice, and um, we started. It's it sounded intriguing, so uh, we sort of got together with Matthew and sort of um, he created sort of the the DNA of the piece for us. And so then when we got back from Mary Poppins, we started um, actively writing it. And then later on, we felt we needed uh, another a black voice in the writing team, and Amber Amber joined us, and that was also fruitful. So um, it's all on stage now. So yeah, yeah, it was, it was a long process. It was six years of workshops oh, wow. and different, um, um, you know, readings or dance workshops, all of that, all under the leadership of Casey Nicola, who we had never. We, we had worked on an episode of Smash with him, but um, we always wanted to work with him because we had been working with the same creative teams a lot. We had worked with Jack O'Brien and Jerry Mitchell uh, on a few shows, and um, it was sort of fun to to work with. with uh, to make a new friend in yeah, the room. Yeah. yeah. So, and, and also, obviously, I mean, Casey's been on the show. The thing that's so remarkable about him and Jerry has this too is he's a dancer and a choreographer. So to have one person be able to envision both things of uh, both parts of a musical like that is sort of. And by the way, there are so many numbers in the show that have Casey's unique, brilliant, zany. It's it's so intensely funny and complex. These fabulous, fabulous production numbers. Um. For, for people listening who don't really understand sort of one person writes the, the music, composes the music, and one person writes lyrics, although you and Mark have a unique relationship in that you both write lyrics often together, yes. yeah. and then there's the book writer, and sort of when you say Matthew Lopez, by the way, The Inheritance was so extraordinarily beautiful, and... Um, and our dear friend John Hickey was just yes, so magnificent in it also... Um, and so the fact that he could sort of write the inheritance and and this unbelievably deeply moving but also hilarious musical, um, what a feather in in Matthew Lopez's cap, by the way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he was. Um, I I stopped by the show because I was in Midtown last night. Yeah. And, um. Uh. Um. You know, there's a there's there so much of it is uh, I was thinking about how beautiful the writing is uh, sometimes and but also extremely funny you know and it, uh, it was um yeah it, he was great too uh, we enjoyed that process of it I, I guess the question of when it became a story not just of someone hiding to get you know to to hide from the police and the mob in drag when did the idea become and then in being in drag this character finds 
themselves, like some version of themselves is, is actually more complete than they've ever been. Um, I thought that that was, you know, I saw it in early preview, so I'd read nothing about it. And so I had no idea that that was about to unfold in front of me. Um, So I guess I want to ask you two things. A, the casting's pretty brilliant with Christian Borle and Jay Harrison Gee. So if you could talk about their coming on to the the show and how that happened and then the decision in writing this thing that okay this is what what we're going to make it not just we're going to have a black woman in the in the part that we've understood is the Marilyn Monroe part um but and, and so bringing in all all of the politics of that time um the specific idea of changing where the story goes in such a huge way um, I think that the, well, a lot of that was Matthew. Matthew was a, opened a new window for it. And um, and again, because there already had been a piece on Broadway that was based on the movie, right. I, there was no reason, reason to repeat that. So um, the idea was we needed to make a Some Like It Hot for um, our time not, you know, not uh, married to the 1959, though a lot of the kind of sexual politics of that movie are very advanced, but the world has changed a great deal, obviously. And um, so it was, it was Matthew who kind of opened that window to that, to the the idea that, that um, you're uncovering something inside you that's going to, you know, uh, liberate you, let you free. And um, they all kind of go through that journey, all of them. And so um, that was uh, that that was I, I'm going to have to say pure Matthew, you know, and, uh, and as far as the two actors go, um, Christian, we had worked before uh, several times. We had he uh, was obviously the star of Smash. And also we had done Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. So we knew what we 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 were big fans of his talent. And and um, and Jay had, has was with it the longest in the workshops and so uh, the 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 you know jay's non-binary so that was um important to the to us and and um and he he the questions he asked were the right ones and so uh, we addressed those in the writing because you you know when you describe matthew and even how you just talked about it sort of wanting to bring it into a more modern space politically or culturally, yet it's still a period piece. So was there any point in time where you guys thought, what if we had it be a present day story? Or was it always meant to be generationally, you know, decades ago and the viewers not watching something from today, but from history? Right. Well, we loved the period and we had actually had moved the period from the movie. The movie is all flappers and Charleston's and so um, and, and the, you know, running wild in the in the 20s. We Matthew wanted to move it to just to, to the depression. So that was also kind of uh, um overhanging the, uh, the, the atmosphere. And then um, he wanted it to be take place at the end of, where where the end of the story prohibition is repealed. So uh, and so that was sort of working backwards from that. So that was in the 1930s. And also uh, it changed a lot of like for Greg Barnes, the costume designer, all of that. It's a very different look from had it been you know the the flapper style of the twenties. So it was, it, it, and the design elements were affected by that as well. Um, 
you and Mark Shaman have been writing together now for how many years? <laughs> okay. 10. Um, <laughs> yeah, since I was 10. No, um, since the 70s. We, we met in 1976. Um, he, I was in, living in New York and he had just moved to New York. And um, we had a had a kind of a clubhouse um, that was in the East Village. It was called Club 57. And um, it was in the basement of a Polish Catholic church. And um, we we were a little, at that time, Broadway was kind of ruled by the British musicals. It was that the time of those big exports like Cats and all those things. And so, and we were, we all felt a little too rock and roll for theater and too theatery for rock and roll. So we had to find kind of a, a tribe um, that had a like sensibility. So um, this little basement clubhouse became kind of a, uh, a, a, a it was quite, uh, it had something in the water, I'll say, because Keith Haring, Ann Magnuson, Kenny Scharf, Jean-Michel Basquiat, they, we were all there together at that time. Like Keith would have an art show and then Mark and I would do, um, we had dinner theater that we did there once a week on Mondays. And so, and every night it was a different event. So we had found these people who were discovering, um, who had a, had a similar sense of humor as we did. And it was kind of like a uh, an irony that we were, had, we had just, we had an irony about pop culture. And so a lot of the things were influenced like by that. And we had done, a, we, we decided we needed to do an original musical there. And so we wrote a, a musical called Live in Dolls, which was about Barbie, how Barbie met Ken. And that was very popular and it ran for months there and people would sit on beach blankets and eat pizza and watch it and yell back at the actors and all of that. So that we we wrote that out of necessity because I was already doing I had done a production of the Trojan women there that took place in Las Vegas. And then um, we had done a few things. And then and then all of a sudden people started coming down there to see it. Uh, Tommy Toon and, and Jay Press and Alan, the writer of Cabaret and, and Alan Carr was there all the time and Joe Papp. And they would be sitting in the audience with, you know, these stoners and junkies watching the, the shows, so. That was and in at some 79, point, I think 79. <laughs> yeah. And you and Mark became a couple. Yes, yes, yes. We were together for many years. Early on in that moment, in that basement, were you guys sort of, as soon as you started writing together, did you sort of fall in love at the same yeah, time? Yeah, it, it evolved over that time. And, and um, you know, I'm five years older. And so he kind of, uh, yeah, yeah, over over that period of time, the, you know, the we found each other that way, um, creatively and emotionally. And it continued for quite, quite, quite a long time. And, 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 you know, it's still a relationship that we still love each other very much. Um, uh, we're just with different partners now. <laughs> So you guys were able, I mean, I, I bring it up because in 2003, when you guys won the Tony Award for Hairspray, right, um, right. you, there was something, you know, it's so funny that it kind of rocked the world at the time because it's so, wouldn't do that today, or at least I'd like to think it wouldn't, but Mark 
uh, uh, Scotty's partner was was giving a speech, an acceptance speech, and he thanked his the love of his life, who happened to be standing next to him, his co-writer, and you guys kissed. And we kissed um, it. It was on television. Crazy the a reaction to it because it was the first um, same sex couple kiss on national on an award show. So um, we just did. I, as Mark said, if he if he had won in a a, 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 a dishwasher on the Price is Right, he would have done the same thing. But we literally, it was such a natural thing. And also on stage with us were our two closest, two very close friends, Matthew Broderick and Sarah Jessica Parker. And I think I actually might have kissed Sarah longer than right. I asked Mark. But, right. but they, um, um, it, it sort of reverberated. Um, and and um, But it was a totally unplanned and just a sort of a natural moment of joy it was something that we had worked very hard to get to so, so what happened after that i mean that yeah. night at the award show it became this sort of this watershed moment and other you know dennis o'hare my my husband was in take me out at the time right, he dennis. Won, uh, yes and joe yes. won that night yes, yes. yes and so i remember dennis then thanking his husband or partner at the time i mean it, it be and then michelle Pock won and and hurt like it became thematically a really beautiful moment throughout that entire show. But then I wonder for you guys afterwards, what was the reaction in the business, in your world? Were there reverberations beyond the beautiful glory of it? Was it a hard moment to navigate in some ways? It, unexpectedly? It actually, it actually wasn't because we had, you know, we lived in New York. I, I would imagine if in other parts of the country and I did. Yeah. They did tell us that they they you know there was some hate mail about it and you know but it, it just seemed like a natural moment there was so we were you know had worked as I said worked so hard to get to that and yeah. um, it was just a it was just an expression of joy so um, yeah I, I I remember I mean of course we remember the all night vividly but what was the thing where you noted as a young person that you have a knack for writing incredible lyrics and and rhyming in really complicated fabulous ways what was your aha moment well i i was a kid when i was a kid i worked in a um i grew up not far from new york um just outside of nyack which is you know was pretty pretty close to new york and and i went to the academy of dramatic arts on uh, and in new york and uh and I worked at a theater with um, called the Tappan Zee Playhouse, which sadly is no longer there. And um, I was like 14, 15, and I would be an apprentice. I was an apprentice and you would they would do a show every week, but a star would be in it. Um, but an old time star like Betty Grable and Van Johnson and people like that, they would come through that town and do the show. And so I I didn't wasn't paid didn't get any money I had to drive ride my bike there at all hours sometimes I'd be there for almost 18 hours a day working but um my parents sort of allowed it they said you know you obviously want this so I you know and prior to that I had made a theater in my backyard and did Tennessee Williams plays so you know it's just a it was just something that I was so wanted to be a part of I would have done anything it's funny I, I I it's just a passion that and um 
I, I originally thought, oh, I'll, maybe I'll go to New York and be an actor in, but I, I, I didn't enjoy that side of it. I didn't, I didn't, I liked being on the other side of the table. So after a while, we create, when I you got together with Mark and we created uh, a world where we could, we were in control of, so. <clears throat> so you weren't writing musicals that your friends and family were doing in your backyard. You just were a lover of, yeah there. yeah no and I read every play and I went to you know I would go to the theater every Saturday in New York because I just got on the I would get on the bus and um and I uh went to class and at the academy in the mornings and went to matinees in the afternoon and saw you know everything but um yeah I couldn't get enough of it I say you know it's like grease paint in your uh, veins you know so I so I <laughs> that was and then you know I went to college and got further into it and by the time I came to New York um and and Mark and I um decided we were going to write this musical together and I had never written you know lyrics or anything but Mark had you know Mark's Mark's brain worked in a way that he he almost he schooled me in it so so you know and then then you know we have a very you know um gentle collaboration where we sit together for you know in, in this room for hours and hours a day and, and try to get something you know first you're paralyzed with fear and then by the end of the day you have something on paper together and uh so and, and obviously the, the more you do something the more you kind of hone the craft of it right so, so you never took classes you never you never did you know like I don't know the BMI whatever those workshops are that they have now for musical theater writers it was trial and error and just collaborating together it was it was uh, oddly the um the Barbie and Ken musical um got a lot of attention and um uh um mark was working at the public theater then and um and they had come to see it and um and something had fallen out of the schedule at the manhattan theater club so lynn meadow said i want would you bring that musical to the up there this is when it was way uptown on east 72nd street or something right so we we did we we brought the that we moved the show but um sadly Mattel wouldn't give us the, the rights to the to the names so we had to change all that so we kind of lost a little bit of its um magic there but well, the pop cultureness of it yeah yeah I mean they looked uh, exact they dressed like those characters and John Lee Beatty had done this beautiful set which was the Barbie carrying case that opened up and everything was in it and so um but it was kind of rock and rollish for the Manhattan Theater Club at that time. So does that musical still exist somewhere? Like, do you think about putting it up? No, it's deep in a drawer. <laughs> but right. I go back and listen to I was founded or like some lyrics that there's there's so um uh um they're primitive, I would say. <laughs> early, early, early Whitman Shaman. Hairspray was your first Broadway musical? Yes, yes. So that's how how long from Barbie and Ken in the basement to Manhattan Theater Club to Hairspray on Broadway? How many years was well, that? Well, I had done a lot of, I, I had sort of established a name for myself in the cabaret world. Right, right, and I, right. And also I spent most of the 80s 
in, you know, I did hundreds of shows uh, in Danceteria, Studio 54, the Limelight. They would give me a budget. Uh, um, Ian Schrager or, and or, or Rudolph from Danceteria, they would give me, they would say, here's uh, $10,000 and you do put on a show and um, I would keep most of the money, pay everybody in drink tickets. And then um, this is before DJs were the stars. Okay. I used to think, oh, well, if you do a, a big extravaganza, it'll bring people in things. So these shows were at, you know, one o'clock in the morning. I Like, I like did... what? Can you just describe a little bit? Like when you say show, like, what do you mean? Okay, I, I would do, I did, uh, I did, I did one that was the Bible in 20 minutes. It was called Pagan Place. And it had over 200 people in it. And um, they were literally, they would show, you had to you, you had to come up with your own costume with a certain guidelines. I had people who kind of shepherd them around. And then I would have three or four people who, who were sort of standouts. Then Joey Arias was in those, a, guy, a great guy named John Sex, uh, another of uh, them, um, Ann Magnuson. They would, they would be the headliners. And so uh, I did, I would did that. I did an, another one called Nude Faces of 1985. And, and um, that was at Danceteria that had a huge cast. It was all, you know, uh, sailors and things like that. So. When you, but, I mean, you're in New York in the eighties. And so you're, it's, it's this incredible, um, create incredibly creative time, right. And, and pushing boundaries and then the, the loss, the amount of loss in the community at the same time is, uh, still weighs yeah. heavily on, on all of us. Right. I mean, decades. Well, later. yeah, when I wasn't, you know, doing these shows, I was going to putting together memorials or going to them and, um, and Mark's, um, uh, it was interesting because uh, the, uh, MoMA just did this huge retrospect about Club 57 because so much artwork had come out of it. And part of that was these shows that, that had been very crudely videotaped and all of that. And um, they restored all that and put them in the, their collection there for this. But it was um, to see those again after all these years and realize that um, almost 80 or 85% of those people who are in those shows are no longer with us. So for, for both Mark and I, um, the New York became haunted. And so um, Mark's career was starting to take off in the movies. And so mm -hmm. said, well, I think we should move to California. And so um, we did. We went, I, you know, I, 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 we went to LA for ten years, and I didn't, I didn't really. He was doing movie after movie, and then yeah, Patty right. Lapone was were in a TV show out there called Life Goes On, and and she came to a party at. The, we lived in Laurel Canyon. She came to a party at that house. Jeffrey Richmond brought her, and. Um, she said, I want to sing. I want to do a show. And so, somebody told me, you're the guy who could do it. And I, I said, because I had did a lot of cabaret acts. Christine Ebersole, I, I, Edie Beale, I worked on her cabaret act. I mean, it was a lot of cabarets there. And in New York, you couldn't swing a cat without hitting one. Bette Midler. And, Bette, and, yeah. And, and the High Heel Women was a group I worked with. And, wow. Uh, and um, yeah, there was a lot of them. Anyway, Patty wanted to sing. And so I put a show together for her and we did did it at the um geffen 
playhouse there. And lo and behold, it just they said we want to move it to Broadway. So um, I came, I got my, I started migrating back slowly yeah. over, over yeah. time. So that was your Broadway debut. Yes, it was called Patty Lapone on Broadway. Yeah, uh, and uh, yeah, I had directed and conceived that. So incredible, and 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 that was the beginning. I mean, I don't know that there, you know, like I I was looking at your your resume. I mean, <laughs> to say uh, Raquel Welch, you did a show with Raquel Welch. Is that true? Well, we were friends. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so a lot, very eclectic group. Yes, a very eclectic group. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I have to just because my listeners and they are global and they are all of them from Brazil to Teaneck obsessed with smash. I mean, it's just it was just this phenomena. I mean, of all the things that people wrote into me wanting to talk to you about um, the repeat offenders of, of wanting to know more about Bombshell and Smash, the amount that you guys had to write and produce weekly. I just find it extraordinary how how much you had to write. And the idea that you had to write not just for the Broadway musical, but that these songs had to work both for the, the musical and the characters within the show. It's very heady to me trying to understand how you oh, negotiated it very, that. It was very complex. Um, yeah. When it started, um, they they didn't know they knew, the, the idea originally came from Steven Spielberg, and he wanted to do a thing where they would write a musical in this real time. It was supposed to be for Showtime, okay. and they write a musical in real time, um, and and at the end of the, that season, do the show on Broadway. So wait, um, wait, really do the show on Broadway? Yeah. Okay. So <clears throat> you know, on Showtime, you probably could have spent an hour with two people sitting at a piano writing writing a show but on but when it when it moved to network it then had to be a, a more of a soap okay. in a way that you know it had to have a cliffhanger but everyone was very stuck on what is the musical that they would do and so i i had suggested what if it's about marilyn monroe and that was uh, that everyone went ding, ding, ding. That's perfect because right. it has her ambition and struggle and all of that could feed into the girls uh, competing, uh, Megan and Kat competing for that. Yeah. So that became the the um, sort of the engine for us. So so we wrote we would literally write a song on Monday. Um, the girls would come maybe on Tuesday and do the demo and then they would stage it on thursday and shoot it on friday so it was it was it was that hectic of pace so i mean i i, I mean other than like glee which also i can't even imagine like the pace with which they yeah. had to um that became uh for a soap opera the investment from its audience and i knew Teresa rebeck and i knew david marshall grant i knew all the people who right, became right. the showrunners throughout and so i know it was very fraught um uh, that's like a whole call other it show <laughs> i call it <laughs> vietnam <laughs> that's the musical um and it's funny because i mean you have you know spielberg at the top right who's right, sort right. of known to be the most um calm 
you know, Sweden in the room in terms of keeping everyone um, yes, invested he in the a, thing. He, he is, um, he, he, what I love about him is, is uh, that he is an audience member. I mean, that is his total, uh, that is so much about who he is and what he reacts to. And, and he just feels like he's in the audience. So I, I love that about him. So that he's a fan of he, the thing. Yes, that, that he, th this is what I want to see if uh -huh. I was in the audience. And so I, I, it's, a, it's a wonderful quality for a, a director or a producer. There's yeah. been so much talk over the years of Bombshell actually coming to Broadway. Is that still on the back burner somewhere? No, it's actually on a front burner. Are they... Um, um, Rick Ellis and Bob Martin, um, who are two Broadway book writers, and they said, we'd like to take a crack at creating a, a story. And so they went off with the catalog of songs and figured it out. And so about, when was it? It was about, it was in the summer. Um, we they we did we did a reading for uh, like twenty nine hour work session with a cast, no director, and um, and the, the guys sort of really woodshedded and create and all week we rearranged and rewrote and and at the end of it came out with um, with a very funny sort of noises off version of Smash. So. Um, they call it a, a play about a musical. So all the songs are in there and we wrote some new ones as well. And then um, uh, by chance, Steven's, uh, Spielberg's daughter was getting married. And so he was in town and he said, oh, I'm in, I'm in town, can I come to the reading? And he came to the reading and was, you know, overjoyed by it. So um, yeah, there's another workshop in the coming year and we're about to bring on a director and all of that but it's very so, funny i laughed a lot at it for the meta of it all are yeah. you allowed <laughs> to say who was playing marilyn in the 29 hour reading in these workshops well yeah because i think a lot of pictures you know steven took pictures with everybody so it went out there it was a funny group it was it, just for this it was uh, uh, megan was in it and um megan hilty and uh, bonnie milligan and uh um christine nielsen uh, was very funny and beth level and brooks hispansis it was a very funny group of people and, and real really game for it because it, it it is like noise is off where they're putting on a musical in Maryland, but everything goes wrong in the in the in the production of it. Well, that's <laughs> thrilling. Um, before I let you go, as is the tradition on this podcast, I end each episode asking my guests to share a little known fact about themselves. And I wonder if you have something you could share. Oh my. A little known fact about myself. Um A, a little known fact. I'm t I'm painfully shy. <laughs> I know you might not believe it, but I I actually am. I don't really enjoy getting up in public and doing things. I mean, I, I'm lucky that in all in, in my life, um, I've had Mark always by, by my side, and um, he's he's the more gregarious and more uh, forward person. So I'm very relaxed to be in the. In, 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 a, in the background, so. 
Well, Scott Whitman, thank you uh, for being in my foreground for this entire conversation. I enjoyed your foreground. Uh, all right. Well, I will see you soon. And thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you. I enjoyed it a lot. Thanks. I'm so glad. One more thing, I keep getting emails asking how to donate to the podcast. First of all, thank you in advance. You are the kindest humans. Just go to littleknownfactspodcast.com slash donations. That is where you donate. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. episode of Little Known Facts was edited by Nicholas Klar. We record in New York City. The Little Known Facts theme song was written and recorded and sung by Georgia Famusa with backup vocals by Caleb Famusa. Thank you. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply.